Welcome to the Housing Journal podcast. I'm Emma Power and I'm thrilled you can join us today. This is a collaboration between the three best housing journals, Housing Studies, Housing Theory and Society, and the International Journal of Housing Policy. We have a fascinating episode for you this week. First up is Beth Watts from Housing Studies, catching up with Dallas Rogers about the value of thinking relationally in housing research and a new special issue grappling with this. Then Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society sits down with Mark Stevens to think about what causes housing systems to change. We finish the episode with Dallas Rogers from the International Journal of Housing Policy talking with Caitlin Buckle about the challenges of conducting housing research during the pandemic. They cover questions of gender, motherhood, research ethics, being an early career researcher and the pressures of precarious work. Let's start with Beth Watts from Housing Studies. I'm Beth Watts from Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh and on the editorial board of the journal Housing Studies and I am delighted to have Dallas Rogers here talking to me today. Earlier this year along with Hazel Easthope, Emma Power and Ray Duffy-Jones, Dallas co-edited a special issue for Housing Studies called Thinking Relationally About Housing and Home and that's what Dallas and I are going to talk about today. Hi Dallas. Hey, Beth, how are you going? It's uh, good to be on this side of the microphone instead of uh, hosting. Role reversal. So just to start with, this idea of thinking relationally wasn't something that I was familiar with before this special issue, and that might be the case for some of our listeners too. So tell us what it means to think relationally about housing. How is this different from how people have tended to think about housing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it was something that we actually wanted to grapple a little bit with in this special issue. And maybe to get into that question, the best place to start is actually how we came to this question about thinking relationally and doing a special issue on uh, relational thinking, housing and home. And the kind of way that we came to this is a bunch of Australian housing scholars have been running for quite a number of years. It's actually Professor Keith Jacobs, who's on the International Advisory Board for both your journal and the International Journal of Housing Policy, has been running a housing theory symposium for a number of years. It's a relatively informal gathering of housing scholars who have a kind of interest in talking about theory particularly and trying to unpack theoretical concepts. And I've run that uh, symposium a number of times. Keith has as well. And this special issue actually came out of the 2017 housing theory symposium. And what was going on at that time was some discussions, particularly around a couple of what we might call relational theory. So theories like actor network theory, assemblage theory, there was a lot of kind of discussion at that time about those theories. And some of the editorial team, Emma Power has done a little bit of work on actor network theory. And so we decided that we'd put that on the agenda as something that we'd discuss. And we got a, a quite a diverse range of papers and, and speakers that came to talk about relational theory. And the first thing that we kind of realized is that actually it's very hard to pin down what relational theory is. There is a kind of like big umbrella 
idea about relational theory, and you could probably put almost any theory under this banner. So if you think about Marx or political economy, effectively, it's a relational theory, right? It's about how people provide labor, people who own the means of production, use that labor in certain ways. You get a the labor theory of value is a kind of relational theory. So in kind of big picture terms, everything fits under the banner of relational theory. But in this, we kind of were, were definitely focusing on a bunch of key theories that have been put under the banner of relational theory, and they are kind of actor network theory, assemblage theory, those types of ideas. Yeah, that, that that's really helpful. So in the very broadest terms, it's about housing in relation to anything else, zooming the lens out from housing to everything else. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I guess the kind of bios of Hazel Easthope, Emma Power, Van Ray are kind of interesting here. So Hazel, as I understand it, uh, has kind of an anthropology and sociology background. Emma, Ray and I all have PhDs in human geography. And human geography obviously is very, very relational. It has a very kind of relational focus. And in the kind of geography domain, there's been a lot of kind of thinking about particularly actor network theory and assemblage theory, both kind of so critique of the theory and discussion. And we wanted to kind of, I think, drag some of that thinking that was going on in human geography over into uh, housing studies. Yeah, brilliant. So, I mean, reading over the special issue, you know, obviously a core theme is that thinking about housing relationally comes with lots of benefits. And the people that want to hear the long answer to that question should go and read the special issue. But Dallas, wet our appetite. What do you think? Pick out some of the benefits of thinking relationally that really matter to you, that really sprung out to you from this special issue. Yeah, so you definitely should read the papers because I think what's really great about all the papers in the special issue is that they take various relational theories and really make them their own through their own empirical casework. And so there's a lot of very interesting ways that relational thinking has been taken up in the empirical cases in the special issue. But I guess there's kind of two things to think about when you're thinking about, I guess, any sort of theory and theoretical discussion like this. And I think that relational thinking is a good one is there's kind of like ontological questions and epistemological questions. And so at kind of ground level with relational thinking, there's a whole bunch of ways that theories like assemblage theory are trying to kind of make ontological claims. So one of them is that they uh, have this, it has this idea that, that, that we, should, we shouldn't start with any preconceived concept. So we shouldn't start with a housing market or we shouldn't start with a nation state or government or, or a community of, you know, like a social housing community that we should go out into the world investigate that place almost from the ground up and develop a an empirical kind of observations through that process. So, and you can see there that those sort of ontological questions kind of unsettle what we would do epistemologically. And so um, I think that that's the kind of real benefit in thinking through kind of how these different ways of thinking about space, place, housing, people kind of would lead us into different kind of methodological, epistemological kind of forms of inquiry. Now, there's been a lot of critique that we should uh, mention of things like assemblage and actor network theory. And we, we cite that in the editorial. We're not swallowing the kind of 
actor network theory, assemblage theory, Kool-Aid here, I think it's important to kind of flag those. And one of the key kind of critiques is that if you read uh, people like less so Latour, but more Deleuze and Qatari, it feels like a lot of what they're saying is just ontological, is just like big picture worldview kind of critique. And so there is a challenge in dragging those kind of big, fairly abstract claims back down to like how we would do this methodologically. And that's something that the authors really needed to grapple with in their empirical work and something that uh, actually a lot of people have found quite problematic about relational theory. So that was kind of something that we wanted to explore in this editorial and in this uh, project itself. Is there a utility for relational thinking? Is there, or should we throw out these ideas? Um, and that that's something, you know, that we kind of leave a little bit hanging and a little bit up to the reader to to make up their own mind. Fantastic. I uh, There seems something really appropriate in 2020 about taking an approach that's grounded in that way and lets us you know, put all of our assumptions away very explicitly and very intentionally. I think while the world is going through all this, it feels like the right kind of exercise to be going through as 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 scholars and individuals even. Yeah, as our, as our world sort of falls down around us and all of those ideas that we thought kind of mattered kind of get reshuffled in the process. Yeah, I think that's right. So before we let you go, um, tell us a little something that you learn from editing the collection that you hadn't really thought about before. Uh, There's so many great papers in this uh, special issue, but the one that really struck a chord with me personally was Lawrence Murphy's paper on the calculative practices of land value. And I just really liked the way that he undertook that piece of analysis. And I I really like the idea of calculative practices as, as a kind of theoretical idea and a theoretical tool to critique various parts of the housing market. So yeah, that was that was the the definite takeaway. If you want to see a very good kind of example of how to operationalize assemblage theory, I think uh, Sophia Mallison's paper on using assemblage theory to think about the home, I think that that's a, a great case. And there's actually a couple on assemblage theory. We have some work looking at tenant activism in New York. And Ash Alam's paper, uh, where he uh, looks at informal housing in Bangladesh and the the way that he undertakes his kind of methodological work there, I think is really fascinating too. So yeah, I think the real benefit of this work is not necessarily in the theoretical framing per se, or even the editorial, but in actually the way that people operationalize these ideas as method in the papers. Brilliant. So those interested in um, those papers can find them on the Housing Studies website. And there's also a treat for those whose interest is piqued by Dallas's reference to Asher's paper. We uh, conducted a Twitter interview in which he included some some great reflections and some brilliant photography, actually, um, from his paper. So check that out, too. Great chatting with you, Dallas. Thanks very much. It's been so good to be on this side of the microphone. Beth Watts from Housing Studies. You can check out their Twitter handle at Housing Journal. And now I'll hand over to Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society. For over 30 years, 
housing scholars have agonised over what causes housing systems to change. In comparative housing studies, many researchers have adopted a welfare regime approach, usually drawing on Esping Anderson's Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism. Other schools of thoughts emphasise diverse political economies, such as a variety of capitalism approach. Others argue that housing systems are inevitably converging under pressures of neoliberalism. The focus of today's discussion is a feature of the current issue of housing theory and society, where Professor Mark Stevens from the University of Glasgow critically engages with the contributions of the late Professor Jim Kemeny in order to explain housing system change and to develop further his own thesis that the nature of housing systems depends crucially on their reaction with much wider welfare regimes. In leading this debate, he is also joined by the voices of Maria Elsinger, Michelle Norris, Walter Matznetter, David Clapham and Sean McNellis, as well as Joseph Hergedus and Christine Whitehead. Jim was particularly interested in explaining the dynamics which led to the creation of distinctive housing systems. He was really interested in the role of rental markets in this process, which he saw as either being dualist or unitary in the regulation of their rental processes and markets. He focused on cost-rental not-for-profit housing systems and reinvestment of their surpluses in mature systems, drawing on this experience in Sweden and while at ANU in Australia many years before. Jim Kemeny died this year, leaving behind an enormous legacy for housing theory and HDS is pleased to make this available to all listeners online for free. Professor Mark Stevens now takes up the challenge of Kemeny's provocative ideas in today's world and he's with me now in the hot seat all the way from the University of Glasgow. Um, Jim Kemeny's uh, thesis uh, was applied to uh, housing in advanced economies in the post-war period where governments commonly subsidised house building uh, in response to housing shortages. Um, he observed that over some decades, uh, these social or cost rental sectors would generate rental surpluses, a process he called maturation. Um, when surpluses were generated, he argued that governments had a big decision to make, uh, if you like, a critical juncture. Um, they could choose to extract surpluses from the social rented sector, for example, through the sale of dis discounted sale of, of social housing, um, in which case social housing became increasingly targeted on low-income households. It became separated from the private rented sector, creating a dualist rental sector, uh, and owner occupation uh, became the tenure of constrained choice. Um, in other countries, um, he observed that, that governments could allow the cost rental sector to retain rental surpluses, and this allowed them to compete against the private rented sector. Um, even after the removal of rent controls, their competitive advantage allowed an integrated rental sector to be created. Um, and this provided attractive housing uh, that provided uh, a viable alternative uh, to home ownership. Uh, so in these 
um, unitary or even integrated rental systems, um, a, a quite different uh, uh, housing system was created. Um, and what started as a theory of rental systems evolved into being a theory of housing systems as a whole. So do you think this, this theory uh, actually explained housing systems at they were, as they were at the time he developed um, the thesis around 25 years ago? Um, in my article, uh, I, I look at uh, three countries as case studies, really. Um, and I, I think in Sweden uh, and Germany, um, yes, it did, albeit through um, different mechanisms, different institutional structures, if you like. Um, and I think Germany probably came closest to the integrated market, uh, whereby, whereby it was the, the competition from the cost rental sector uh, that created the, the integrated market, uh, rather than through regulatory control, which I think was all, always more important in Sweden. Um, however, um, when I looked at the UK, which is obviously an example of a dualist system, um, I, th I think Jim Kemeny was in completely right to observe that a dualist rental system uh, was created, um, but I don't think it was the, the, the key causal causal dynamic in the British housing system. Uh, I think that was more straightforwardly um, a direct divide between social renting and owner occupation. So um, what about now? Do integrated rental markets in countries like Sweden and Germany still exist? I think in Germany, uh, there's been a, a retreat from an integrated market back to uh, a unitary one. Um, and I, I think uh, this can be seen because the, the social rented sector has shrunk uh, in size um, through sales, um, through uh, what Michelle Norris has called it, there's a sort of self-destruct mechanism within social renting whereby much of it um, uh, transfers over into the market sector um, and the decline in, in new build. So what do you think have been the key things that have brought about this change and what do they tell us about Jim Kimmini's theory? There, there are a number of, uh, number of dynamics um, go, going on here. Um, in, in all three countries, uh, the economic crisis um, prompted major reforms of uh, social and economic structures. Um, and in all cases, uh, this led to uh, rising levels of poverty. Um, and these narrow, this narrows what I call the boundaries of possibility uh, in the sense that, that the trade-off between housing for all and targeting in, in cost rental or social rental sectors becomes more acute. Um, second, these economic um, uh, crises led to, to reductions in subsidy for social rented housing, um, which, which reduced proportionally, at least in size, and therefore its influence over the wider market was reduced. Um, and thirdly, uh, mortgage market deregulation um, prompted or, or, or fueled the rise in mortgage home ownership in all countries other than Germany. So on that point, you place quite some emphasis on quantitative easing by central banks, referring to this as really big finance. What do you think or why do you think this is important? It's important uh, because, uh, because it forces down interest rates and, and free, frees up finance 
uh, which finds its way into investment in assets, including housing. Um, so it, it's a, a key additional facilitator um, of the process of financialization. So um, just turning to, to the special issue, which um, you contributed your focus article to, in that focus article, there were a number of people commentating on it. Um, one of them was Walter Matznetter from the University of Vienna. And he argued that regional to local housing markets and policies are becoming the appropriate scale for comparative research. Given your just comment on, on the role of central banks, etc., what do you think about what, what Walter said? Do you agree? Um, I, I think um, local or regional markets um, can be important, um, but I would dispute whether they are the um, appropriate scale uh, in, in all cases. Um, and I, th I think there's a, a good reason for saying this. Um, the first is that uh, the national uh, remains very important. Uh, even where government has retreated uh, from big housing programs, there's a strong path dependency in there. Um, secondly, central government spending uh, remains key, um, and it's central government that shapes uh, the institutions of what I call the wider welfare regime, the labour market, um, the uh, social security system and the, and the, and the tax system. Um, so the, these are key ways in which uh, the na national government remains uh, remains important, and added to that, uh, the role of quantitative easing uh, also shows the enhanced role of, of central central banks. Um, but if the proposition is that if the state withdraws uh, from a strong housing policy, uh, then national systems will become uh, more fragmented. Well, yes, uh, yes, that, that, that's, that's correct. Indeed. So, of course, uh, um, we've seen that happen in, in, in Germany uh, with the uh, withdrawal uh, of national governments from direct supply policies, etc. And, of course, uh, reliance on the, the lander governments to, to respond. Of course, that's been very variable response. So, taking a different tack, Maria Elsinger from the TU Delft focuses on the clash between the social market and neoliberal thinking and between non-profits and commercial landlords. How do you see this? Um, the Netherlands is uh, an interesting uh, case and I think it's illustrative um, of the, the growing complexity of interpreting uh, housing systems so that uh, you know, in Kemeny's thesis, we had strong underlying ideologies that, that, that led to the creation of coherent institutional structures. Um, but what you have in countries, including the Netherlands, uh, is if you like uh, uh, competing ideologies within the same, within the same system. Um, but I think the overall effect in the Netherlands uh, has been rather similar to, to Sweden in the sense that, 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 that uh, mortgaged home ownership uh, has has grown, um, and and therefore the idea of an, uh, a unitary housing system, I think, has broken down there too. So um, both uh, countries, of course, have had rising populist movements. Um, and uh, what do you think this means for welfare regimes and their housing systems? 
Well, um, if I were to be optimistic, um, then um, populism might be seen as as a reaction against uh, pervading neoliberalism, um, if you like. And I think we see that in the United States with the Trump phenomenon, you see it in the UK with with Brexit, you see it in in, um, the Netherlands and um, other countries as some some kind of... uh, um, uh, r- response against against immigration and so on. Um, now, if, if if it is a reaction against neoliberalism, um, that then it, it can lead to some rather unpredictable uh, policy uh, interventions, um, which may not not be particularly coherent. But I think what it does do uh, is that it it throws down a challenge to to left or centre left parties. Uh, to construct a convincing third way, um, as the advocates of the social market did in the post-war decades. So, just to conclude, you believe that Jim Kemeny's theory no longer provides um, an ideal or satisfactory framework for understanding today's housing system change. What alternative do you provide or propose? In my response to commentators, I uh, set out a typology of a multi-layered housing regime framework uh, in which uh, those institutions of the middle range still uh, remain core to the explanation, um, although I distinguish between the spheres of uh, consumption, production and exchange uh, or or finance uh, within the housing system. Um, I place the interaction with the wider welfare regime, labour market institutions, taxation, social security, which create distinctive distributional outcomes uh, as being a core relationship. Um, But uh, in addition to that, um, I argue that that a stronger emphasis must be placed on macro-level drivers, such as globalisation, macroeconomic policy, including quantitative easing, um, and also at the bottom end, that, that more emphasis Uh, needs to be played to the regional and local uh, variations in housing systems. So, well, I think we better wrap it up there, but um, thank you for a very interesting uh, uh, interview and actually a a very thought-provoking and valuable contribution to housing theory and society. Um, So listeners can download um, uh, Mark's article. Um, It's in volume 37, number 5, um, on uh, the latest issue of housing theory in society. It's open access as are the comments by um, several of the commentators in the, um, the issue and also uh, Mark's response to them. So um, please enjoy this very provocative uh, contribution and, um, and thank you for your time, Mark. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Julie Lawson from Housing Theory and Society, and their Twitter handle is at Housing Theory. And last up, we have Dallas Rogers from the International Journal of Housing Policy talking with Caitlin Buckle about the challenges of conducting housing research during the pandemic. Caitlin, you've written a great essay for us. It's a housing futures essay for our journal. So uh, what is your essay about? It's about conducting housing research uh, during the pandemic and looking at it through uh, a gendered and precarious work 
and also a, a research ethics lens. Excellent. And what I was hoping you could do is just talk us through some of the arguments in that you cover gender questions, questions about motherhood, questions about ethics, questions about precarity. Kind of how did you come to put these different ideas together? Well, the way that they tied together was through my lived experience of conducting research during the pandemic. So it wasn't something these those three things didn't really come to me beforehand and then think about writing it later. It was sort of just reflecting on uh, that experience over the last couple of months and then pulling out those themes as part of the process of writing. Because uh, I, I guess I asked you to write a paper or an essay because I saw you talk about <laughs> talk about some Ahuri work where you're talking yeah. about the complexity of doing research in this moment. That's right. So well, I, you heard me whinging. Yeah, what you heard. That's right. <laughs> Which probably most of the school heard me whinging. Um, so and, let's start with that whinge. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. What was that kind of dilemma? Um, so I think part... Uh, I didn't really go into this in the essay, but part of the challenge of the research over the last couple of months was that I was also starting in a new place. So I was less familiar with some of the admin systems and trying to learn that remotely is is hard. So you're talking about human research ethics processes yeah, and things right. like that. Yeah, that's right. So going uh, And obviously the administration themselves were having to try to figure out how to manage everything remotely too. So they had all their staff moving off. Um, and working from home. Uh, so it was sort of a disruptive personal environment, but then obviously everybody else was going through the same thing too. So one of the things that you talk about in the essay is mothering and being a mother and how challenging that is for you because you are on a casual, con- well, you're on a contract for a period of time and you're an ECR, you're an early career researcher. Yeah. How does those factors come together? Yeah, um, my daughter's two and I think one of the big pressures is that I feel like this is a really pivotal time in my career. I've got this uh, great contract and I've got the space to really try to do as much as I can with it to, to sort of be competitive in the research environment. But at the same time, there's this tension between that and also really sp- spending as much time with my daughter while she's this precious age. And I think... One of the hardest things during the pandemic was um, having to bring those two things together into the same space and not being able to separate them and the constant tension between wanting to spend as much time with my daughter as I could, but then also feeling like I needed to do as much work as I could and trying to manage that within the same household, I think was really tough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of on top of that, the pressure. So a hurry is a particular funding stream in Australia and they are very keen for projects to be completed on time, I think it's fair to say. So I guess there's this tension in, in here between needing to get on with the project and get it done, but also the, the added complexity of working from home, being in a new place. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't and beyond um, the sort of institutional um, Ahuri pressure, which they were actually very understanding because they knew that there were so many issues and they also, in the writing up of the project proposal, you know, you have to make sure that it's it's an achievable project and they will, you know, you make it reasonable enough that they will agree to <laughs> fund it. So I think it was a reasonable project, um, but of course it's really it was really hard to see what sort of circumstances 
would occur over the next couple of months. And I also felt a less of the pressure from Ahuri, although obviously I wanted to prove myself as a good early career researcher and try to do the, the best job that I could. But there was also the pressure that I thought it was a really important research topic as well. And I wanted to do a really good job for the for the people that I was writing about and for those who were very heavily impacted by the pandemic, those healthcare workers, homelessness services workers, and obviously people who are experiencing homelessness as well. Mm. And when you got into writing the essay, when we were reading some drafts of this, mm. there were some glimpses into, I guess, your private life, really, mm. that you're, yeah. you're a mum and yeah. that you're struggling to care for the kids and manage a home life and to do this project. And we kind of asked you to Put a bit more of that in. Yeah, which I'm really glad you did. I was a bit hesitant to add some more of the personal anecdotes in the beginning, mainly because I just thought, who am I to say that I've had a rough time through these last months? Because um, I'm in a pretty privileged position. Um, I've got, you know, my contract's not going to run out that soon. But you are on a contract. Yes, but I am on a contract. Um, I think it was hard for me to to reflect on my experience and go, oh, I've had a really tough time when, I mean, I was writing about people who are having a really tough time. Uh, and then also talking to other colleagues who are also having a really tough time cut off from their families overseas, um, things like that. But I guess, so why I thought it was actually a good idea to talk about my experiences in the end, though, was that I went into it thinking that I wouldn't have any issues. And I think hopefully by writing about my experiences at, from quite a, a relatively privileged position, it could show that it still did impact me. And therefore, hopefully people will read that and reflect and go, wow, it must have impacted a lot of people if even this you know, person who's in a relatively um, stable <laughs> position was impacted as well. How did it impact you? Um, well... It impacted my professional confidence, and this is something that I wrote about in the essay, because I tried to imagine, rather than myself in this scenario, I imagined someone who was more of an experienced researcher, and I couldn't get away from the fact that I thought that they might be able to do a better job of handling the issues that they faced, um, handling some of the disruptions during the interviewing process, uh, and I also felt you know, this is, it felt like such important work to me that I started to think, oh, maybe there's someone that could have done it better with the people with better experience might've yeah been a bit more and smooth. That, <laughs> and maybe that's like, that's the key issue that these processes, challenges to do with having a young family, mm. challenges with being precariously employed mm. will impact people like you. And that that's a real danger for our profession. That's a real danger for capacity building. That's a yeah. real danger for the future of kind of housing studies. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'm really lucky. I've got so many colleagues that are so supportive and so helpful. And it did really make me think about early career researchers that, I, I, you know, I just started in a new place. And so people were really welcoming and supportive and wanted to help me as much as possible. But I, that, you know, there are other early career researchers that might be in various different stages of their career and might not have that community. They may not have had that community at that time. They may not have had uh, advice for any of the, the hiccups that sort of emerged over the last couple of months. 
th- that really made me think about how lucky I was, basically, mm. beyond the whinging. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're being very uh, humble here in the way that you're presenting this, because I, I think that you do highlight some real challenges and some elements of our profession and our work lives that mm. are quite problematic. What would you say the kind of key takeaways from your essay are? Um, well, what I would hope is rather than people uh, looking up and saying, oh, these these people are in a better position than me, I, I would hope that people look at the certain privileges they have and instead try to look at those who don't have that and try to help them as, as much as possible in all stages of, and this isn't just about housing researchers or researchers in general, just in all stages of life as this is a really tough year. And I think would hope that you know, those in more stable positions could offer advice to those that might be really struggling. And also the the struggle is a lot less visible. I mean, it's really hard to have a good conversation when everybody's working from home. And there could have been a lot of, I think there's a lot of hidden feelings now more than ever. There needs to be extra vigilance about how we can help our colleagues at this time. Mm. What has worked, do you think, in terms of support in this moment? Uh, that's a good question. In our school, we've had a couple of the, of the more experienced academics send out emails saying, oh, does anybody need any help? Does anybody need a chat? Just open, just, just an email with everybody attached. And I think that was really, that was such a nice feeling to get that. Even if people don't automatically take you up on that offer, I think having that offer there just, makes you think, okay, this isn't a dog-eat-dog world. This isn't super, super competitive. There are people that are really nice and actually um, just want to talk or just want to help. It's been really awesome talking to you about your essay. (laughs) Thanks so much, Dallas. That was Dallas Rogers from the International Journal of Housing Policy. And you can check out our Twitter handle at IJHP Editors. And that's us for this week. We look forward to chatting with you again next time.